On this episode of Axel Arigato Talks, I'm delighted to be joined by Alice Aidy, who is a documentary photographer, campaigner and filmmaker who dedicates her life and work to raising awareness for issues which so often go unpublicised. Super excited to talk to you. Thank you for finding the time. Thanks. Um, you are a uh, documentary photographer, filmmaker, campaigner and all-round fab gal about town. <laughs> Tell me about um, how you got involved in your line of work. Um, I guess it all started once I left uni and I started to document the refugee crisis. I'd studied history and politics and it was 2015, so if you can take your mind back there, it was the height of the refugee crisis. Um, and I started to document it through photography and film and mm -hmm. I guess very, very quickly realised the power of human stories. This was a time when... Um, you know, refugees, it was such a politicised issue. It was, I mean, you know, it would go on to have Brexit and the, the immigration conversation would have such a disproportionate place in our political conversation. But, you know, the language of the time was David Cameron talking about swarms of migrants crossing the Mediterranean and it was highly politicised. So mm. I sort of saw the power of um, really humanising stories and really the power of portraiture, which is something that's carried me years on um, to humanise the people behind headlines, um, you know, the, the numbers and statistics that we hear kind of so reductive ultimately and we become so desensitised to seeing the same familiar images of refugees um, crossing the Mediterranean. And that work to, has, has brought me, you know, many years later, just recently I was on the Ukrainian border um, and I hadn't actually done a refugee story in, in quite a long time. I'd mm. focused on the refugee crisis for about four years. It would then lead me on to um, climate change but yeah, most recently I was on the Ukrainian border. What was that like? Did you, did you, as soon as the news of the war broke, did you have this inherent need to go and document? That's a really good question. I think whenever these uh, stories are unfolding, you want to do something. I think we all do. You're desperate mm. to know how you can help. Um, and in my case, it's through storytelling. So I, I got a call. And I think I knew the moment the name of the person calling uh, sprang up on my phone. I was actually in Brazil doing another story. Um, I was meant to be there for a few days more and I, I saw this name come up on my phone and I thought, okay, this, this might be go. the Ukrainian story. And it was the Thursday and the war had broken out on the Monday um, and I was invited by National Geographic to do a project there on the border documenting refugees and, and IDPs. It was an easy decision to make. I mean, I had to make the decision in about an hour. Um, there's a pang of fear and adrenaline. You mm -hmm. have no idea the situation is changing minute by minute, so I didn't know whether I'd be safe um, or, or what the situation was. I would ultimately be. I would just be on the border. I would be safe. Um, but I went home, had a 36-hour journey home, packed my summer gear for a flak jacket, a helmet, um, the, the, the warmest layers I could find, a sort of Arctic jacket, which I waddled around in looking like a penguin, um, and I headed to the border. God. And, and what did you step into? Uh, chaos. Uh -huh. um, it was a rapidly unfolding situation. I mean, you know, war broke out on the Monday, so hundreds of thousands of people decide we have to leave. So I met with people who are leaving already bombed cities, um, many that hadn't themselves seen um, violence yet, but were fleeing ahead of time. It was total panic. Mm. Um, it's an unfolding humanitarian crisis situation. Uh, what I did see was an incredible volunteer response from the, I was on the Polish-Ukrainian border. Incredible. From to locals? See. From locals, I mean, Polish primarily, but then, you know, people who'd driven from like Belgium, Luxembourg, Germany, holding signs saying, I have a spare room, come, um, which was really heartwarming to see. And it's, it's probably 
a bit of a cliche, but always in these situations, you see the best and worst in humanity. So incredible yeah. um, volunteer response. But at the same time, there were two Nazi rallies um, of Polish to uh, basically confront the non-Ukrainians coming out. Um, a lot of racism at the border. To send them back. To, to, to send them back. So imagine for those students, many of them African students, mm. they have fought their way onto trains to leave the country, often sent back to the back of queues. Mm -hmm. um, they fought their way to safety. You arrive on the border and you're met with Polish Nazi rally. So it was a really a mixed bag. And I say you see the best and worst in humanity for me having, as I said, documenting the Syrian refugee crisis mm -hmm. a few years earlier to see the difference in the response was really shocking. And I think that holds a mirror to us and it's a lesson we really need to think very deeply about. You know, yeah. how can you celebrate the extraordinary response of Europeans? I mean, millions of refugees within weeks have just been absorbed into Europe. With the Syrian refugee crisis, much, much smaller number of refugees. Um, the same borders who've opened their doors and let Ukrainians through were, were beating Syrians with, with batons. So the, the hypocrisy and the double standard has been, you know, a bitter pill to swallow mm. um, for sure. And I, I think we need to think about that really deeply. And speaking about the Syrian um, crisis that you were privy to, um, I read that there was a photo you'd taken of a Syrian refugee that was actually on the front cover of The Guardian. Mm. And it went along with a campaign for fundraising, is that right? Yeah, okay. the campaign raised um, more money than any, any yeah. campaign in history, which was amazing. That's, yeah, a particularly sort of heartwarming chapter for me, because by that point I'd spent about a year documenting the refugee crisis. Mm. Um, and I think it was a turning point because it, it gave me the confidence, actually, to call myself um, a photographer, a photojournalist, and a filmmaker. You know, yeah. there's something I wish I hadn't spent so long needing the confidence and, and other people's approval, but you know, I'm 22 at the time, I think. Um, it's completely uncharted territory. It's a really male-dominated space. Um, and it took me too long to sort of call it myself, but I, I, I remember that because it, yeah, it finally gave me the confidence to say, I can do this. And at 22, it's kind of wild. How did you navigate that at such a young age? Because to me, I'm, I'm very green when it comes to this, you know, I, like, I get scared going through border security in a normal situation. So to approach that at 22 years old and lead the charge and lead the documentation and the media coverage for it in, in your own way, where did you look to for, I don't know, like a helping hand or like, you know, a chat? I think ultimately, uh, and this is something I still navigate now, it's not really about me, you know, it's about the people that I'm documenting. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think placing myself in it was something that I actually didn't really know how to navigate at the beginning. I think I probably had a lot of guilt, um, which I now sort of shift into a sense of responsibility to um, use the, you know, the privilege I have, the ability to tell stories and ultimately know my role and know what I can offer. So when there is a crisis like Ukraine, even if it's a drop in the ocean and, and clearly makes no difference really tangibly, um, I have to do something. And, and so knowing my role, I have been very lucky to have amazing mentors actually. Mm -hmm. And I'm always talking to people about, you know, find mentors and, and connecting people because I've had incredible mentors, one of which right now is in Kyiv on the front line in Ukraine um, doing the really dangerous work, doing the, doc the reporting for the New York Times, Gosh. risking her life every second, bombs dropping 20 yards away from her. So there are people doing much, much more dangerous things than me and I've looked to them for advice. And also, I think I've always asked like, questions, you know, I've always been pretty curious. And even if I thought it would make me sound stupid, I've always asked questions and That's sought good. advice. The best way to do it. And you, did you meet these mentors 
in your travels on the front lines? I met Lindsay um, actually through a photographer. I bounded up to him. I'm mortified now thinking back to it, but it was right in the early days of me documenting the refugee crisis. And mm -hmm. I was a self-taught photographer. I studied politics. It was kind of new territory for me. And I bound up to this guy, Danny Castro, an incredibly talented photographer who I later became friends with. But he was holding this camera and it looked like it came from another planet. I now know it's a medium format film camera, but I had no idea what it was. What does that look like? It was like a Mamiya, it's like a blocky thing. You look down like that to take the photo. And it's like a like, box? It's like a bit boxy, okay. kind of um, shot on analog film, medium format, so bigger than a kind of 35 mm -hmm. millimeter negative. And with, I mean, yeah, with all the enthusiasm in the world, I think I bounded up to him and I was like, hello, I'm Alice, I'm learning to like, yeah. Um, and I go up to him and ask for his advice and ask him about his project. And um, obviously I, I knew how to take photos at the time, but mm. it was, you know, one of those people I was asking for, for advice. Um, and we stayed in touch. And about a year later, he found out that Lindsay was looking for an assistant. Yeah. And so Lindsay Adario, this photojournalist whose biography I'd read, I'd underlined the pages, highlighted the words, um, I became her assistant and through her wow. have learned a great deal. Um, so you two would travel together? I've traveled, archived her work, been everything, yeah, she's God. so much. <laughs> now I sort of work alongside her on projects, which is amazing. Um, but back then, I, yeah, I went from assistant, which she's been an incredible mentor to me. She sounds incredible. She is. Tell me about Choose Earth, which yes. is an incredible initiative. Oh, thanks. So Choose Earth is, yeah, well, to describe Choose Earth, I kind mm -hmm. of have to chart back a bit. I document the refugee crisis, um, really was tunnel vision on that for about four years. And um, somewhere along the way, I start to engage with the issue of climate change. Never had done. Yeah. Wasn't one of these people at school who was like recycling, not at all. Someone who uh, understood climate change as something happening to nature and the environment as if that was somehow separate to us. I didn't understand yeah. how, as someone who cared about human rights and social justice, it was relevant to me. But learning more about the refugee crisis, I learned that climate change will cause the biggest mass migration in history. So mm. if I care about refugee rights, I had to care about this umbrella issue that would exacerbate these social justice issues yeah. that we care about. If you care about racial injustice, if you care about refugee rights, if you care about gender rights, you have to care about climate change because mm -hmm. it will ultimately intersect with all of those issues. And that was like, boom, penny drop moment, my life changes. And, and in layman's terms, just to break it down for yeah. me, <laughs> mass migration through the cause of climate change, that's literally the world heating up and it being unlivable, so people have to migrate. It's a mixture of um, the planetary outcome, so as you say, like the planet literally heating up, mm -hmm. um, but also the impact on politics, on inequality, on creating conflict. So as things become more unstable, as mm. things become more unpredictable, um, we're gonna have conflict over resources. Right. We're gonna have more right-wing governments as huge, um, population shifts occur, what will happen with Europe? We're likely to build higher walls, have more militarized borders, justifying that because of migration, that's what we need. And wow. as I said right at the beginning, the Syrian crisis had a majorly disproportionate impact on conversations in the UK around immigration. It was mm. highly politicized and the UK took very, very few um, refugees in the end. But yes, climate change will have will be shaped by all of this. And as one of my favorite writers says, you know, everything in the next few decades will happen in the theater 
of climate change. We don't know. I mean, everything about the civilization that we've built, this incredible world, these incredible societies, has been built in a period of um, ecological stability, a kind of Garden of Eden-like historic period that we have arrived and fundamentally disrupted. Fucked yeah. So, yeah, we've, we've, we fucked it up. I'm yeah. glad we could swear. You should have told me we could swear. Oh, yeah, podcast. swear away. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Completely fucked it up. So we have pretty much fucked it up. Yeah. And... Um, we're going into uncharted territories, and I think that's the thing to understand. We don't really know what's coming down the line or, or, or how things will turn out, but for sure it's instability, it's conflict. Um, and when I realized that, I, I realized I had to turn my attention to this issue that I'd never engaged with, that I felt was, you know, for hippies and environmentalists, people that I didn't see myself as being anything like. Yeah. Um, but so it's actually threat number one, really, isn't it? For me, it, yes, it's the umbrella issue. It encapsulates everything. And ultimately, we will all have to care. Mm. Um, and some people care because they are passionate about animals. Um, some people care, like me, because my entry point was social justice issues. Everyone has their way of framing it for it to really hit home. And I mm. think for so long, it's felt really far away, distant, both in time and as if it's happening to other people. But yeah. it's not. It's happening today. It is happening certainly to disproportionately the global south, but will ultimately impact us all. And when I realized that and that truly, really landed, I really shifted my focus to climate stories. But within that, to human stories. Mm. Because we love David Attenborough, obviously. Yeah, we love him. He's an icon. Ledge. But, um, and he's done so much. He's made us fall in love with nature. Um, but what's missing from that storytelling is exactly this. Whereas the human stories, the social justice impacts that I think are so important to get people to engage with this issue and make it feel relevant for them. Wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. I'm learning so much. Um, in terms of uh, travel being like an educational tool, mm. which I think it really, really is, where have you been to where it has completely, uh, your perception has done a 180? where you thought you were stepping into a situation, crisis or otherwise, just around our beautiful Earth. Where have you stepped into and you thought, I had absolutely no idea it was like this, that the people were like this, that the culture was like this? I think it has to be my recent work in Brazil, which is actually linked to what you mentioned, Choose Earth, which I totally um, missed out on saying. But I recently been working with indigenous communities across Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of blown my mind because it's taught me uh, that a different value system fundamentally exists. Indigenous communities, and this is a fact that never seems to get less mind-blowing, are 5% mm. of the world population, but they protect 82% of global biodiversity. What? Crazy. So these uh, amazing communities are protecting and fighting for the future of our planet. And in many ways, though it feels very distant what's happening in Brazil, what's, you know, we speak of the Amazon, but we all too often fail to talk about the people protecting the Amazon. So the Amazons are not just the lungs of the earth, mm. they're also the heartbeat. And who are the people who are protecting that land? When you go to Brazil, where there is rainforest, it is indigenous te protected territory. And something that we don't understand in terms of the media representation of it is people actually inhabit that area. People are living there. It's been their home for, for generations, way so before colonization. Totally needs yeah. reframing. Um, not least because, you know, indigenous communities and those people are the guardians of the biodiversity in which mm. we are enjoying and that we all too often take for granted 
our culture, a Western culture, an extra extractive culture has destroyed that biodiversity and they have done everything ancestrally for decades, for generations to protect it. Yeah. Um, so why is it relevant to talk about indigenous communities? Because without them, we really don't have a chance um, at saving the planet. And they are hugely underfunded, hugely underrecognized. There are loads of stereotypes around them. And, you know, I've done a deep dive into this just two years ago, mm. but now I've realized that every story that I've done somehow has led me to this point. You know, it's human stories. Um, it is environmentalism and social justice is literally embodied in their struggle. Um, and I've learned a huge amount from them. What are they like? Well, they have a completely different value system that is not extractive, that gives back to the land. They have mm. an incredible relationship with nature. Um, there are hundreds of those communities. They all have different traditions and um, songs and uh, mythologies and um, traditional paint and clothes. They are truly extraordinary and not really taken seriously enough, I think, as the real climate leaders and um, they should be. And I hope that this issue that may feel really abstract and, you know, I can understand why would people in London feel that it's relevant to their everyday lives, but I, I cannot impress upon anyone how fundamentally important they are. I think it's a lot of unlearning because naively, when I think of the Amazon rainforest, I thought of it as like a barren waste, not a wasteland, but barren for yeah. sure. And I thought it was just uh, not inhabited by many people at all. And then Shell would come and rip another part out, do what they needed to do and go on their merry way. The same way that I think there needs to be a lot of reframing towards climate, for example. Uh, I read something recently where like the oil companies and the people that are causing the most harm to the earth have pinned it on us as consumers, yeah. e.g use only recyclable materials, you know, it's really, they're almost shifting, displacing the, um, you know what I'm saying? Displacing totally. it, yeah, and being like, it's your problem, as long as you recycle, we can go willy-nilly over there. So much has to change about the way that we talk about climate change. Yeah. Um, so you're totally right, one of the most successful BP campaigns ever is to invent the concept of the carbon footprint, which is insane. Mm. And in so doing, you know, it's such a clever PR stunt. We suddenly become utterly focused on the individual when who should we really be holding to account is corporations and governments. So we're like the faux perpetrators. Totally. Okay. And of course, there's stuff we can all do. There's, there's no doubt about that. And ultimately, it does come up, become about consumption. You know, mm. it's not just a climate crisis. It is a crisis of consumption. We should be buying less. We should be buying better. We should treasure what we own. There's no doubt we can do things as individuals. But ultimately, the pressure has to be put on governments and corporations. Um, and it's so cleverly been spun on us. And then within the climate movement, you have people within the movement with, you know, bigger fish to fry, essentially, pointing fingers at each other, saying, oh, no, but you're flying and you're doing X and you're doing Y. And I think the problem with that has been we can't get people with social currency in our world, mm. artists, um, musicians, celebrities, actors, to talk about this issue because they are so terrified of getting called out and being called a hypocrite. Mm. Um, and Which I think happens very often. It happens all the time. Yeah. It's, it, and it, you know, I, I can tell you from personal experience as someone who talks about these issues, it happens to me. So people have turned around to you and said, how can you do this and then fly? Oh, 100%, but more than that. I mean, two weeks ago, I was um, photographed in a bluebell field, had no idea that bluebells are an endangered species, and for four days got... <laughs> What berated? Got, I don't know, I found myself in like a dark corner of the internet getting called a murderer, an entitled bitch, everything under the sun because I trampled on these bluebells. And the funniest bit, I mean, actually, it really wasn't funny at all, but, you know, it's like we have major issues and I'm trying to talk about them and then I get cancelled for walking on But do you find yourself second-guessing because of the work you do? 
Definitely. I mean, you're, you know, you're filled with self-doubt, of course. I think we all are in the current em environment and social media and the climate movement can be really savage, but mm. you know, ultimately, what can you do? Um. <laughs> How have you found the role of social media in terms of like amplifying your work? Um, I think social media, particularly in the past few years, has been incredible. Mm. Um, not just in my work, but for the movement in general. So in the pandemic, I was forced as we all were into isolation, um, suddenly, you know, I would have normally packed my camera bag and traveled to go to the where a story was, mm. and I'm forced into excruciating stillness, which I'm not very good at. But it forced me to be creative in a different way. So um, we're two co-founders. We set up a platform called Earthrise mm -hmm. and started to do climate storytelling uh, in a totally different way. You know, it was a moment where social media is being used, infographics were spreading like crazy. And I feel like the, the conversation, you know, in a post-George Floyd world, the conversation around social justice was really gaining the traction, yeah. importantly, that it needed. And this spread into the climate movement, conversations around climate justice, this movement to reframe climate change, not just as an environmental problem, but as mm. a social justice and human rights issue, uh, was super welcome yeah. to me. And, and, you know, it was, we need more of that. So. Social media has been an incredible tool, not least for the incredible, you know, the activists who uh, have platforms but need a way bigger voice than they were getting. I think it's been an incredible moment. Yeah. And then in terms of campaigning, yes. which you do, what are your thoughts on, for example, Extinction Rebellion, where it's sort of shock campaigning? No, well, in the early days of Extinction Rebellion, I got involved and mm -hmm. I really saw the power of uh, direct action. And yeah. I think the thing about XR um, is, well, I don't know which way to say this. They've, I think, failed to adapt and failed to change in the way that was has been demanded of them. Um, but what I do understand about them is they don't seek to be liked. And I think that's what people don't understand is, you know, you're not going to get us on board by blocking streets and blocking. But their aim is not to be liked. Mm. Um, their aim is to cause disruption, to kind of shake us by the shoulders and say, wake the fuck up. Yeah. This is happening. Um, and I think to some degree that's worked. I think they've made some major mistakes along the way. Um, and when it comes to me personally, I was, you know, really supportive of their work at the beginning. Ultimately, I think it was me working out what can I offer this movement? What, how can you best serve this movement? And for me, that's through storytelling. I see. Um, I want to touch, um, before we wrap up, about the films that you've made. Wasn't it quick? So quick. I want to talk about the films that you've worked on. One yes. of them debuting... Um, San Francisco Film Festival? Yes, and Sheffield. Yeah. And Sheffield. Tell me about that one. Yeah, Disconnected was a short film, one of my first, really. Um, shot on 16mm film, mm -hmm. and it was about the loneliness epidemic. I found out that the UK had elected a minister for loneliness. I had no idea. And I couldn't believe that. It sounded like a sort of Orwell novel, a dystopian world. Um, and what do they do? Well, they, they deal with the mental health crisis, oh, which is that, you know, we are not just it's not really about isolation, but that we feel fundamentally disconnected from each other. Mm. And so we set up an um, answer phone machine where young people could leave voicemails uh, and talk about their experiences. And it was really beautiful. We sort of shot more um, staged, uh, yeah, beautiful, I hope, visuals. But the, the voice that you hear is these really intimate personal accounts of how people are feeling. And something about, you know, I would be the first person to shove a camera about three inches from your face. That's mm. normally the work that I'm doing. Mm. But with this to not film people and just allow them the privacy of leaving that answer phone uh, message, I felt people 
spoke so freely and it was so um, less boundaried. Totally. Speaking of loneliness, it's um, isn't it in Japan where you can rent cuddles? Can you? Yeah, you can do that. Should we go to Japan? <laughs> Should we go to Japan and cuddle? <laughs> yeah, you can do that. There are places where you can actually go and rent time for a cuddle. Wow. None, of, none of the, you know, rumpy pumpy. It's just pure, like, intimacy. They have a real problem with um, yeah. loneliness in Japan. I think it is endemic, not just to the UK. But mm. apparently UK is one of the most lonely countries in Europe. So. Wow. Well, I don't feel lonely talking to you. And on Aww. that note, let's say What a line. I know. Thank you for, Thank you for coming on Axel Aragato Talks. It's been a pleasure. It's been awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.